Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Where do we start this morning? Well, let's start with the President of the United States continuing his national super spreader tour. Last night he was in Iowa and he had some complaints. He nominated for three Nobel Peace Prizes, different subjects. And I told the story the other night. I was in Florida, where Pennsylvania, I told our first lady, darling, we're going to have the greatest publicity I've ever had tonight. I got nominated for the Nobel Prize. Do you know what that is, darling? Let's go home. So I leave for the first time in a long time early. I get home. I turn on the television. They talked about your floods in Iowa. They talked about how's Iowa doing the crops? How's this happening? How are they doing in Florida? How they... Three, four stories, one after another. Where's my Nobel Peace Prize they don't talk about? I said, you know, darling, this news is a little tough. It's a little tough to crack. When Obama got his Nobel Prize, it was so early, he didn't even do anything. He still doesn't know what he got it for. They said, why did you get it? He said, I have no idea. And it was the biggest story. It was all over the place. With me, I got three, and they got three nominations. Nobody talks about it. He'll talk about it. He'll talk about it endlessly. So uh, joining me on the podcast today, Kim Whaley, law professor, constitutional expert, former U.S. attorney, author of the book, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why. Kim, where do we start with the, the psychological projection there? The president giving a, you know, one of the variations of his, it's all about me, 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 me speech. Right. And he's such a victim. It's always that he is the underdog. Um, he is just kicked around. He, the, the bad guys are always at his throat, whereas, of course, he has more power than virtually anyone else on the planet. So, you know, we this isn't new. Um, but it is kind yeah. of interesting that he reportedly complained that he's only up six points and he's a little bit concerned. I mean, that sort of show of weakness at a rally or concern is is also, I think, pretty that's I should say that is new for for someone like Donald Trump. Well, this, that's an interesting question. Whether he knows he's losing, it, 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 it's an interesting question. It may be irrelevant what what he knows, whether or not he lives in this alternative reality bubble. But he's, you know, as I said in my newsletter this morning, he's certainly not acting like a winner. He's kind of acting like somebody whose luck has run out. But I just love the the riff on the Nobel Peace Prize and and how everybody is so unfair to him, uh, and 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 how he is constantly comparing himself to Barack Obama. I mean, those nom- I don't know whether he was actually nominated three times or not. He probably made that up as like a lot of the other stuff. But he's talking to people in Iowa complaining that he turns on the television and they were spending time on the natural disaster that took place in their state. Like and and they didn't get to me. It was, you know, I, you know for Chapter 999. His lack of empathy or compassion is extraordinary. Okay, so Kim, I wanted to talk to you about a number of things. Obviously, the uh, Amy Coney Barrett uh, hearings are wrapping up today. Uh, that confirmation is is on track. I want to get to that, but I also uh, wanted to get to something that I that I started my newsletter uh, off today with, which is the good news, and it's and this is something that you have been tracking closely. This story of the early voting is really kind of extraordinary. It, it is a compelling story. Just read this AP account out of Savannah, Georgia. They came by the thousands to vote early. Descendants of slaves, children of the civil rights era, another Georgian standing in line for hours when all of them could have been somewhere else. And they're talking about the, the voting process. Washington Post 
talking about the fact that the three weeks to go before November 3rd, roughly 15 million Americans have already voted in the fall election. So talk to me a little bit about what we are seeing happen. There have been so many anxieties about the mail-in balloting. The uh, Trump Trump, uh, folks have been investing a tremendous amount of effort in trying to discredit uh, early voting. And yet you are seeing at least what feels like it's a tsunami at the moment. Yeah, it's really heartwarming or chilling or a combination. And I say that because historically, only approximately 50% of eligible voters vote in the United States. And the Knight Foundation did a study in January before the before the coronavirus saying the number one reason Americans don't vote is they think their vote doesn't matter. And then we saw COVID, we saw a registration dive because, you know, DMVs and other places to register weren't open. And then we see the president, the attorney general, assaulting mail-in voting, assaulting drop boxes. Um, We see across the country lawsuits from the the right, frankly, trying to make it harder to vote in a pandemic. Uh, We see threats of, you know, bullying at the polls. We'll probably see that claim that this is going to be contested and go, should go to the to the uh, to the Supreme Court um, claims that maybe Republican legislatures are just going to hand their electoral colleges college votes to Trump right before the, the electors are supposed to meet in December. Um, and I make drew the conclusion a few weeks ago, uh, Charlie, that the only way. To, to sort of save democracy through this tsunami of assaults on it is by, uh, to sort of belabor the term, a tsunami of voting. I mean, it. this is the only way. People ask me all the time. It has to be an avalanche to the point where it just becomes silly to claim mail-in voting is fraudulent. And this is what we're seeing. We're seeing this early. It's just... It's just a really amazing thing that the better angels of American democracy or what brought us together as a nation are, are coming back 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 to the to the fore. I, I just I just hope I don't want to jinx it, um, yeah. but it's extraordinary because as you and I've talked about, it's not Trump or Biden on the ballot. It is American democracy itself. So four more years of Mr. Trump, it's done. The experiment's over, and I think people are seeing that. With at least it looks like they're seeing that with the, with these numbers. Well, you know, I, I've been saying things like, you know, it's 21 days to go until Election Day, 20 days to go until Election Day. Today's 19 days to go until Election Day, which is actually not true because today is Election Day. It's going on right now. November 3rd is just the deadline for the ongoing election. And this is part of this mental adjustment that we're having here. So a couple of things. Um, the polls would indicate a dramatic split. I mean, just mind blowing. Uh, split uh, between the people who are voting early slash by mail versus the people who are planning on voting on Election Day. Overwhelmingly, the early vote is going to Biden. Overwhelmingly, it looks like the Election Day vote is going to Trump. What are the consequences of that? Well, you know, I, I think you're right. And maybe I've, I'm guilty of the same thing. The focus on the third is is probably misplaced in part because we will not know on the third. Um, Certain swing states do not even count any of their ballots. So we might be hearing these ballots coming in, but state by state, it really depends. Some states, they can't uh, count a single ballot until they're all cast. And for mail-in ballots, that means opening them, matching signatures, doing that auditing process, unfolding them, smoothing them out and, and feeding them through machines. If, if things aren't, some states, if, if it's not, uh, the, if the voter didn't sign the ballot properly, they get an opportunity to fix it. Um, you have to contact the voter. I mean, this is a complicated 
longstanding, you know, drawn out process. So I think what this suggests is a couple things. One is that it might have not just hurt Trump, but maybe even, you know, other Republicans on the ballot to have this false claim that mail-in balloting is unsafe and, and rife with fraud because it just the numbers might be there, not be there for the Republican Party in the way they are for the Democrats in in a pandemic, because, you know, elderly people, for example, it's harder to get around A, B, they're more likely to get sick. So um, that they, you know, maybe they'll stay home. We, we just don't know. Uh, the second thing, though, is, again, Trump, I think it's well predicted or anticipated on the third, he's going to use hope. He's hoping probably for more, uh, you know, in-person balloting in favor of him. He's going to declare, oh, the election is mine. All these mail-in ballots are fake. But the fact that these numbers are like this now. I just don't think that's that that sort of is not going to work. Um, he almost sort of showed his hand too early. I think Americans know that this claim that mail-in voting is is rife with fraud. People have heard enough that that's wrong, and the military votes by mail. They've been doing it since the '80s, thanks to Ronald Reagan, right? Um, and secondly, just with this massive numbers, what do you see? All of those are going to be discounted. I just I just don't think it's there. I always think of like Game of Thrones and some huge battle, you know, on a on some planes, right? If you just have lots and lots of people on the other side, it's really hard to to claim that you won. Um, there are just so many on the other direct in the other direction. So I, well, I think feel, good news. Yeah, yeah you, you do feel that there was a, a a backlash that that by planting all the doubts about the mail in balloting and by having all the controversy about the possibility of of suppression, this seems to have aroused this huge counter movement that we're seeing right now. The people standing in line for eleven hours. Okay, now speaking of which. When you see those lines in Georgia, those long lines, I mean, the positive is the positive aspect is look, people are really committed. They are turning out early. Um, they are showing, uh, you know, much, much more motivation than, than you might have suspected or you certainly have loved a, a rather dramatic amount. On the other hand, there are people who look at those lines and say this is what voter suppression looks like. There's no way that people should have to wait you know, hours and hours and hours to vote. So where do you come down on all of this? Yeah, I mean, Senator Cory Booker really did a tremendously moving um, statement yesterday in Amy Coney Barrett's uh, confirmation hearings um, where he talks about sort of the disparities for people of color and, and white people and how, you know, he asked her, uh, have you ever waited even an hour to vote? And she said, no. Um, you know, voter suppression is real and it, it goes as far back as the founding of this republic, which was founded on the backs of slavery, uh, human slavery. And that disparity lives in our culture and it certainly lives in, in at the ballot box. And unfortunately, a conservative leaning court um, struck down a critical part of the Voting Rights Act in 2013. Um, which, you know, don't get me going on the notion that conservatives aren't going to respect acts of Congress. That seems exactly what Coney Barrett, you'd think, would not do is that kind of judicial activism by striking down bipartisan legislation that reflects the will of the people. But as a result, we're, you know, it's the basically election officials can say, you know, we're going to put resources here versus there. And if they can justify it as some, somehow related to election management, um, the fact that it has this disparate impact is very, very hard to turn around in the courts, which is why Congress passed the Voting Rights Act. So, so yeah. it, the, the, the silver lining, Charlie, is I think people are paying attention to voting now. People are learning a lot about the right to vote, about the Constitution, about how absolutely vital going to the polls is if you want to hold on to your ability to, con to control your own government, regardless of political party. And again, I mean, I'm hopeful 
I'm hopeful if we make it through to January 20th and go back to an actual accountable government with someone without a serious um, personality disorder in the in the White House, that uh, we'll have more civic participation. That's my dream, anyway. Okay, so I have one more question about you know possible downsides to all of this with the mail-in voting in particular being so heavily skewed toward the Democrats. What percent of those ballots are going to be considered spoiled? And of course, a lot of focus on Pennsylvania, where the Supreme Court ruled that that if, if you filled out the ballot, you did everything right, but you didn't put it in this secrecy sleeve, they could throw out your vote. They could disenfranchise you if you came in with a, a naked ballot. But there have been r- reports, at least during the primaries, of rather alarmingly large numbers of votes that were thrown out because of technical problems, signatures, etc. So how worried are you about that as a factor, particularly because the the impact will be quite disparate um, depending on I mean, if you if you have 50,000 votes thrown out in Pennsylvania, those are likely to be skew heavily toward Joe Biden, not not Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, 550,000 mail-in ballots were thrown out over the summer during the primaries. I mean, that's a huge number. 550,000. And there are a couple of reasons. One was for delays in the post office. So I do also think, you know, the cute maneuver to try to co-opt the post office and and kneecap it, basically, um, that seems to have failed. We're not seeing the post office become sort of an arm of the Trump administration or the Trump campaign to sort of force his way into four more years. Um, And I think people have gotten gotten sort of aware of the notion they have to mail them early or drop them off. Um, so I, so I think the, hopefully the postal service, uh, sort of, sort of, basis for throwing out ballots will go away. But, you know, the issue when people talk about fraud, it's really administration. And these are complicated systems. I mean, I don't, I really would love to see a federal ballot. We all do it the same way, but states are doing it differently. And we are going to see disenfranchisement by virtue of just filling out the ballot wrong. I mean, unfortunately, you're not in the polling site where you've got a poll worker who's going to sort of clarify any questions you might have or double check what you have is is accurate. If you do it early and you're in a state that is required by law to alert you, um, then you can you can fix it. But not every state can do that. So, you know, as you know, I've been getting on every airwave possible as many times as, as I can to, to send the message. You have to meticulously, meticulously read your mail-in ballot and get it in early. But but you have to literally read every line, turn it over, make sure it's in the right, you know, right envelope and, and that the envelope is signed. We will see, Charlie, we will see a lot of people cut out of the polls. That's why the tsunami metaphor is so important. It has to be so overwhelming, an avalanche that the inevitable people that fall through the cracks don't turn the election. If it's a close election in a purple state, that's where we get into huge issues, um, not just in terms of who's president, but in terms of whether American democracy will survive at all. You know, I, I, I did vote early here in Wisconsin. And um, look, I, I've done this before, but I was obsessed this year with getting it right. I mean, it was like I did exactly what you said. It was looking at it, looking at it again, looking at it a third time, making sure, showing it to my wife, going back and forth, all of this. And so I I'm, I, I, think maybe a lot of the anxieties broke early enough that people did develop this plan. Right. And therefore it is it is playing out. OK, so I want to talk about uh, the, the, st- the state of the race here. Um, I, you know, Donald Trump is, you know, hey, he's been really, really lucky until now and in, in, in many ways. I know you can you know, we can we can we can we can parse that out, you know, in terms of the economy and stuff. But 
you know, things are not breaking his way right now. I mean, you have these job numbers that came out today, which show that, you know, seven months into this, this, this crisis, we're still having nearly 900,000 Americans filing for unemployment comp. Not good. You know, he's been declaring the fight over the coronavirus one yesterday. There were nearly 60,000 new cases in one day, which is disastrous. We are headed for a new peak. Uh, we're still seeing a thousand people dying a day. And so he, he, less than three weeks before the, the election day, he's pleading for the suburban women to like him. He's mocking senior citizens. He's insulting Navy SEALs. And he's really and relying on on this this voter suppression. And he's really been kind of hoping for this kind of October surprise. And before we get to the other one, I, he's clearly very disappointed that Bill Barr did not deliver it to him. He really has been kind of counting on, wasn't he? The right. I mean, so then we see this nonsense in the New York Post about yes, exactly. computers. I, you know, I, I think the, you know, I, I could be wrong, but a lot of or some of the allure of Donald Trump, even before he became president was this sense that he's tough, that he's no nonsense. I mean, people that I know that that still support him. Well, I just like that he speaks his mind and he doesn't let anyone push him around and he says it like it is. You know, I think the, frankly, the virus and how he's handled his own illness, you know, with the sort of strong arming, pathetic, you know, pancake makeup scene on the, on the um, balcony. I think he just looks weak. Uh, okay, I, but, but what I, happened with the Department of Justice? I want to go to put the surprise because he, he, in his mind, He's still thinking of, you know, the James Comey, right. Hillary email type moment. He was hoping for the Durham investigation. He was hoping for the unmasking investigation. And one, two punch for him. Bill Barr's Department of Justice did not deliver him what he so desperately wanted. So what what happened here? What well, what? what What's the story, do you think? Yeah, I mean, meanwhile, we haven't heard from Bill Barr, so you kind of wonder what's going on with him. But anyway, um, he's just been in hiding. You know, I think, you know, Mr. Durham is a career prosecutor. And so they look at the evidence, they look at the facts, and they haven't been able to find anything. Listen, as you know, I worked in the Whitewater investigation under Ken Starr, and people to this day say, oh, Hillary's a criminal. And I'll tell you, I was there. If the evidence was there to prosecute her, they would have done it. It's just the courts are still kind of old fashioned. You're bound by evidence. This is why Trump campaign is losing on these voting challenges, because there literally is no meaningful evidence of voter fraud. And likewise, I think what happened was Bill Barr can't manufacture something out of thin air. And Durham is just saying, listen, I can't give it to you. And so, you know, Trump could could replace Bill Barr, but that's that new person's not going to go to Durham and have Durham come up with something that that just doesn't exist. And so I think it represents a uh, misunderstanding on Trump's part of how the law really works, which is based, you know, as from common law, from the Magna Carta, you know, on a, a creation of a factual scenario that is supported by actual evidence, you know, testimony, documents. Um, it's real. It can't just be a tweet. It can't be a fiction. And also, you know, Mr. Durham is, is a, you know, he grew up in the Justice Department and, and I was in the Justice Department and other parts of the government. You know, these people take their job seriously. They take their oath of office seriously. This deep state notion that people that answer to Trump all of a sudden are against Trump just doesn't borne out with these public servants who could be in the private sector making a million dollars a year in a fancy law firm, but instead they decide um, to act in the public interest. And I, you know, I think that's still yeah. what we're seeing. Okay. So again, on the, on the unmasking, you had the U S attorney, John Bash, who left the department last week and nobody knows quite why, uh, he, he, he ended that review without any criminal charges or any public report. Again, as you point out, we have not heard from Bill Barr. 
Um, President Trump is, by the way, clearly unhappy with, with Barr. So the question is whether Barr, you know, what, what I guess I'm, I'm trying to get some sense of what the dynamic here was. Was it that you had these career officials who just told Barr, I don't care what you want. I'm just not doing it. Did Bill Barr let the president down because otherwise he faced a full scale revolt from the Department of Justice? Well, because I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not willing to think that Bill Barr suddenly woke up and said, you know, I really should um, you know, show my independence from the president no. and uphold the rule of law. It, it, it almost feels like he he pressed the buttons and everybody said, we're not playing anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's possible. But what, I, what I'm trying to um, say is that, you know, at the end of the day, people are motivated by whether there's a ticket for speeding or not, whether there's a, you know, whether there's a somewhere along the line, you're going to get caught. And what I'm saying is prosecutors, if they, first of all, they have to have evidence to, to, to support a grand jury indictment or an information, but that gets tested in court is what I'm trying to say. Like, so, you know, Barr could do all of this stuff, but ultimately if there is not the evidence they will get caught at some point through the judicial process that is not political because it boils down to actual evidence. So if the evidence is literally not there, there's nothing they well, can't they can't do okay. anything about it. Okay, I, because I'm 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 trying to think like Trump thinks. Okay. okay. And I know this is, this is a dangerous thing. He's remembering when James Comey yeah, right. uh, came out and at least just said uh, okay, remember that big press conference we gave where he said he yes. was not charging the first one, where he's not charging Hillary Clinton, but he goes through all of the evidence and everything and says all kinds of things. So you know that in Bill Barr's mind, he's capable of just you know reading a report and saying we found serious misconduct. We are not bringing criminal charges, but not, it's the nothing that is right. extraordinary to me because Barr has shown a willingness to lie about the Mueller report, uh, to to spin or twist any sort of evidence. The complete silence really is striking to me. No, I actually, as you when you frame it that way, I complete, I totally agree. Mm. Um, Barr is a political um, sort of sidekick of the of the president. He's not a neutral officer of the law on behalf of the American people. He's made that very clear. He made that clear before he came into office when he wrote that you know long long memorandum yeah. to the president, basically you know uh, auditioning for the job and say, listen, I'll be your Roy Cohn. Uh, and then he did it when he basically undermined his old friend and colleague Robert Mueller you know, devastatingly by mischaracterizing the, the careful work of the Mueller yes. investigation in a four-page me memo. So yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I, my mind doesn't think that way, Charlie. I yeah. do think, I mean, you know, one possible explanation is what you suggest, which is that, you know, there's some place in the, within the, the professional ranks, they're like, enough is enough. We're not doing it. I mean, because their options really are to band together in some capacity or to quit one by one. And this is one thing I haven't really understood why, say, Republicans in Congress haven't just gotten together and said, listen, it's worth saving the party. Um, so let's together just take this, take take a different tack when it comes to this would-be dictator. They just haven't. So maybe you're right. Maybe within Justice Department, as you frame it that way, I actually haven't thought about it. I think that it yeah. is pretty stunning unless Bill Barr is, you know, sick. I, I don't know. I mean, that's pure well, speculation. And, and you can tell how angry the president is because he's asked during a Newsmax interview yesterday, are going to keep Bill Barr around. I mean, Bill Barr, you know, along with Mike Pompeo, has been the most loyal, you know, bodyguard for the president and he and he wouldn't commit to it. So he's he's almost getting the Jeff Sessions uh, treatment here. So 
I just found that remarkable that 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 happened. And of course, you 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 made reference to the New York Post article, which we're not going to spend a huge amount of time on. Look, I I, I have to say, I I well, it, it's like you know that they're throwing this stuff up against the wall. This is you know more Hunter Biden, more Burisma stuff. What was striking to me though is what a damn squib that story is, but also how it just reeks of bogusness that essentially you have what I think is going to turn out to be Russian disinformation laundered through the New York Post and much of the credulous conservative media. I think Twitter probably mishandled that by trying to censor because now that's the big theme in conservative media. Oh, big media is censoring this bombshell report, which um, I don't think is going to hold up but once again, this is this is where Trump's head's at. Yeah, well, and, my and- favorite tweet tweet on that was so everything else aside, dropping off three laptops to be repaired and not picking them up is something people do a lot. I mean, it's just not. I mean, it just doesn't pass the no. Great face does. Does, right? It's so ludicrous. It is so ludicrous. This reporter who wrote this, I think has had three bylines. She used to be a Hannity segment producer. She's got pictures of herself on social media with Roger Stone and Steve Bannon. I mean, I, I the question I have in my mind is how did this actually even come to publication? Um, and, and, and how, but again, one of the things we've seen in, in, in the Trump world is that they're prepared just to throw out chaff, to throw out bogus stories, and just figure that you just you flood the zone with shit. And even when it doesn't pan out, at least you've you've you know created that crisis, you know, that chaos for the for the moment. Um, so well, but it, does, it, it feels off topic now. Well, oh, completely. But I, I mean, I think they're on to something in that, you know, I actually had a um, young person come and do a, a, a sort of video segment for another show this week. And he comes from Ohio. He's probably in his 20s. And he's, you know, a very conservative family, um, didn't know anyone of color growing up, even in college, and then came to Washington for for work. And he said, it just, my whole perspective changed. And he said, because my family only gets their information from Fox News. I mean, that, that is it. And so if that is, if that is your perception of reputable coherent news, which is what was the case maybe, you know, in the 80s or 90s when there were only a few sources and they self-policed for accuracy. You can't really blame people. I mean, at this point, people don't know how to separate truth, accuracy from spin, from bogusness. And I think that literally we need, you know, an intro course in every college and high school on, on how how to weed through that stuff because it's not done for us anymore. And I think the Trump campaign and the Russians exquisitely understand it. It's just this one in this this, this downward spiral that we're watching Donald Trump in. It just looks really pathetic. It looks it, it just looks it looks sad. I mean, and I don't mean in a compassionate way because it's hard to have a lot of compassion yeah. for him at this point. But but it's also dangerous because, you know, the, the, you're describing a an information ecosystem of chaos. And, and that's that will that will stay around. Yeah, that, and doesn't, that, that doesn't go away. Right. And Putin understands this. I mean, he doesn't have an army to invade the shores of the United States and take over. I mean, he understands the way to kind of control and get get a, get a hold of a control of the American government and American populace is by splitting it with disinformation. I mean, the framers understood this. This is why we don't have a direct democracy like the Articles of Confederation. We have a republic where we have representatives because they understood that when pop, populism takes hold with bad information, people make terrible decisions against their self-interest. And now it's on Uber steroids. Um, the Russians understood it. In 2016, of course, they were using Russian bots. In 2020, leading up to this election, it's Americans and the president himself that is that is planting, or that are planting false information. So this is where we've come in four years. 
That that is the extraordinary thing. What do you need Russian disinformation when you have the president of the United States? Really? It's Truly. Like, what, what is the great vector of disinformation in America? It is the Oval Office. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not Putin anymore. Putin's like kicked back with his, you know, margarita. I mean, he has. He who needs that when you've got you've got the White House doing it for you. Uh, all right. Well, let's talk about what should have been the consuming story of the week. Um, we've talked about this before. The the uh, the the Republican opportunity to put another conservative on the Supreme Court for another 30 or 40 years. And yet this does feel like kind of a sideshow. Um, we just found out that that Lindsey Graham has set the the committee vote for one week from today, October 22nd. They are obviously uh, determined and set and it appears to be inevitable that she is going to be confirmed on a strict party line vote. But you've been watching uh, these these hearings more than the average person. So give me your sense after four days of hearings. What did we learn? What did we not learn? Yeah, I've been watching it carefully, you know, as a law professor, constitutional scholar, you know, we, she and I have very similar backgrounds, frankly. I mean, she has seven kids. I have four kids. I, you know, we, 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 I, I sort of, I was hoping, you know, to see from her, given that it is a shoe in right? It's a shoe in because we don't have a filibuster anymore, just mm-hmm. so listeners understand that, you know, prior to Gorsuch, you needed, essentially, you had to have buy-in from the minority power party, which looped in the minority um, Americans who don't have someone in the White House, right? So, but now it's a purely party line vote. So anyone who's not in in the Republican Party just is basically cut out of this absolutely critical decision. Or as I said, even if someone's not a Trump supporter, um, people on for life that that will change our lives forever. And that, I mean, that's a system, that's an issue for, for the Supreme, for basically Congress to fix, the, the Senate to fix. Um, but, but, you know, she... It really disappointed me, Charlie, that she didn't take this opportunity to say, you know what, I know that I know that there's a fix and I'm going to be on, but I just want to answer these questions in a way that gives some comfort level to the people that were disenfranchised in this process with the last three justices that that I am I am going to be reasonable. She wouldn't answer things like, you know, Amy Klobuchar said, is, is it is it a bad thing or against the law to intimidate voters at the polls? And she refused to answer that. And then Amy Klobuchar cites her a federal statute. I mean, this is a law professor. She wouldn't say whether, you know, voting by mail during a pandemic is helpful for voters or something along those lines. She wouldn't say really clearly whether a president could, would be in his rights to refuse to to transfer power um, on you know after an election, suggesting that it might be a legal question about using force to stay in office. This is this is this is what puzzles me. I mean, I I get the fact that these have become kabuki dances going going back a long way that they don't answer questions, and I understand that she's been coached not to take a position on any issue. But some of those questions were rather remarkably easy. They're just civics one hundred and one. Yes. You know, ob- obviously the easy answer is. A voter intimidation is against the law. I am a judge who would uphold the law, and I would certainly uphold the I mean, what? That's an easy one. Or, of course, the Constitution provides for the peaceful transfer of power. I mean, I'm an originalist, right? The founding fathers exactly. thought the peaceful transfer of power was important. There's no question about that. These are easy questions. Right. And and just, I mean, but she was willing to say that, you know, establishment clause, that is the First Amendment law is, you know, in disorder, needs to be or- reorganized, which to me is a pretty major statement suggesting, because we're seeing, Charlie, a push to basically merge 
you know, uh, Christianity and the federal government. I mean, to, to, to de-separate church and state. So to me, that was a nod to maybe the Federalists or her or that base saying, you know, don't worry, I got that covered. I'm, I'm, I have my eye on that. She sort of almost jumped affirmatively to answer that question, which I would say under her judicial canon, this notion, I can't say anything about anything, um, would be something she'd, she'd refuse to answer. But she was fine on certain topics. She talked about Second Amendment and the, and the space in after Heller to, to change uh, gun laws. Like she was able to do that. I just want to, just a little anecdote. Um, when she said she can't answer hypotheticals, I actually gave two law school exams yesterday um, to, you know, about 180 law students. And one of my law students sent me an email with that attached a couple of memes that are going around uh, on TikTok in the law student community saying, Professor Whaley, we can't answer hypotheticals because we're learning to be lawyers, so we're not going to take your exam. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> they saw right through it, right? <laughs> Well, I also thought it was interesting when they walked her through some of the precedents and the uh, they said, well, um, uh, Brown versus Board of Education is a precedent you'd uphold. Yes, no problem. You know, love the loving case about miscegenation. Yes, absolutely. No problem. Um, then they get to Griswold and it's like, well, no, I can't I can't be talking about. It. So she's willing to endorse certain precedents. They seem to be involving race. But anything outside of that, she became very coy. She wouldn't Did talk you notice about that, that line? She was willing to willing to endorse some cases, but then right. drew the line. Shelby County versus Holder. I mean, this is Amy Klobuchar's issue. I mean, one of the huge questions looming that's uh, voting in right, moment, right. and that's the one striking down a, a critical part of the Voting yeah. Rights Act. Yeah. I mean, this is this is you know back to my book. Um, historically, Congress has tried really hard to fix a number of things with our electoral process. Campaign finance reform, the Voting Rights Act, gerrymandering, or actually they didn't do gerrymandering, the Supreme Court uh, stu stuck in there. But my point is, those are two big pieces. And the Supreme Court comes back and strikes them down. So the question is, okay, in this moment, if the legislature can't fix voting because the Supreme Court's going to come in, how are we going to go back to government by we the people? And she refused to even talk about the Voting Rights Act. This is a, a an act of Congress. I mean, in, in terms of, you know, the, the tricky part about it of protecting individual voting rights. And, and I just thought, to your point, I just thought it was really cynical and very, very sad that she didn't take this moment. She's obviously very smart. She knows her stuff. Mm -hmm. But she didn't take this moment to sort of take the high road and say, I'm going to be a justice for all Americans. Um, there's no reason she couldn't answer certain questions and and then answer others. And then all along, she has this sort of point that, oh, I'm a good judge because I only apply the rule of law. It's like every judge judges and, and originalists judge too. And she sort of admitted that. But my concern is that people think, oh, she's a really good judge because she's not an activist judge. Well, I'll tell you, um, taking health care away from 20 million people, potentially, that's pretty much judicial activism when you're upsetting an act of Congress that represents the will of the people and these judges are not elected. I think one conservative principles really should be judicial restraint. Uh, and I didn't hear that from her. She did suggest that she that there was a way to uphold the uh, uphold Obamacare. She talked about severability. Right. And seemed to be implying, at least to my layman's ears, seemed to be implying that she was open to the idea that, yes, you can take out the individual mandate without invalidating the whole law, which is the whole point of this case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Correctly, I mean, she she used the, the game Jenga sort of as an example of that. So 
Yeah, she in, in, yeah. during during a hearing in which she was not willing to answer very many questions. She did seem to be rather that 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 seemed to be very specific to me and That's seemed true. to be really to signal how she might come down on that particular case. Well, two pieces, just so people know, two things with that case. One is what happened in the Sebelius case is the court um, held that the individual mandate was a tax under the Constitution. Right. She she wrote that was a that uh, Roberts was off, you know, had stretched the plain language of the statute beyond its, you know, reasonable interpretation. So she was critical of that. Then Congress got cynical and basically zeroed out the penalty. And so, so said in the, in the big tax cut legislation in 2017. So then it's like, oh, it's not a tax anymore. Cause guess what? We're not raising any revenue because we lowered the penalty to nothing. So there are actually two issues before the court. Mm-hmm. One is whether now that it's zero, that is legitimately uncon- it's unconstitutional or where you can still call it a tax. So she, there still is a way to basically up, uphold the entire law, but she seems to have skipped over that and assume that's lower courts found for, you know, striking down the ACA. She seems to skip over that. And then then the question becomes, okay, do we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater? And that's the issue of severability. Um, And I think you're right. Pressed, she did seem to suggest that, that she's open to that. Um, And, and so, you know, I I guess there's, there's a little, there's a, you know, a nod in her corner in that regard. Um, But overall, I thought I I would have liked to see more candor. I, I mean, I kept you know, imagining if I were ever, of course, would never happen in that hypothetical seat, how I could do it as answer those questions in a way that shows some compassion and empathy. Because Charlie, this isn't just, you know, legal, you know, sort of head of a pin type analysis. I mean, people are literally afraid. LGBT community is, has anxiety about their future. People are worried about the election. People are worried about their health care. People are worried about women are worried about being able to safely make decisions about whether to have a family or, or whether their health will be in jeopardy if they have to take it into their own hands. I mean, that, that, that she answered in such a technical, lawyerly, pol- politician way, I just, it just, I just thought it was disappointing. Where do you come down on the on the question of court packing, which you know seems to have disappeared from the news cycle at least temporarily? I remember over the weekend, my my personal theory was is the Twitterverse was bored and they had to have something to talk about. So it was like, you know, when is Joe Biden going to answer this question? He appears to have answered the question that he's not a fan of court packing, which is consistent with his position. Uh, but if in fact there there is a Democratic majority next year. Should they go ahead and at least consider it or or not? Because it it in the past it's been kind of a political shoal, you know. Most famously, FDR, right. at the height of his political power, fa- you know, failed to to expand the number of Supreme Court justices, and that that historical precedent precedent hangs over everybody's head. What, what do you think? Yeah, no, I actually do think it's a fair issue to put on the table, and I'll explain why. I mean, first of all. The Constitution doesn't say how many justices are on the Supreme Court, and it's right. it's varied. I mean, there were six or nine now. That is set by Congress. So ultimately, this would be a decision for Congress, not for Joe Biden individually or unilaterally. Um, court packing, like lots of things, is now has negative con- connotations. It essentially means amending the statute to enlarge the size of the Supreme Court. Um, and I think the reason that it's I think it's now on the table is because of how Mitch McConnell has. In, in a way, packed the Supreme Court now with a conservative majority that doesn't reflect, um, you know, the American populace and did it in a way that sort of 
trashed the legitimacy of this, the system. And I really worry a lot about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. I mean, Barack Obama, an originalist, um, someone like Coney Barrett would read Article 2, shall appoint, shall. It's, it's not ambiguous. That was Obama's prerogative to do that. Um, there's only four uh, Democrat uh, Democratic nominees since 1969 appointments and 15 conservatives. And certainly it hasn't been a conservative sort of dominance of you know, the entire political spectrum all of those years. So, so, and then of course, you know, there's questions as, as to why Kennedy handed over his seat when he did um, to a protege, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And of course that was uh, a nightmare, that scenario, how he was appointed, that that process of confirmation. And then we've got, as you indicate, you know, tens of millions of votes already and, and days before an election and, um, you know, she's going to be confirmed. So, so I think it's been set up in a way that it feels so unfair. It feels like so many people are cut out of that system and cut out of the court. And you know, Charlie, five people can amend the Constitution on the United States Supreme Court by uh, interpreting it one way. It takes three, two thirds of both houses of Congress and right. three quarters ratification of the states for the people to do it. Um, they have too much power. They just have too much power. Period. That's my view. Um, no, so, I, I, and I, yeah. I think we've, dis we've discovered this. It should this should not be as consuming as in fact no. has has become. So look, I, I I'm on record as thinking this is a bad idea to pack the court, but I, I would also say this. That that the the new political norm seems to be if you can do it, we will do it. You know, I win, you lose. Why right. does why do the Republicans push through uh, this nomination during an election after promising not to? Because they can. So if that is the new norm of American politics, that if if you can do something, you should do something. Then when the Democrats get in charge and they will point out, hey, this is not unconstitutional. We have the power to do this. We have the votes to do it. If we have the votes to do it, we should do it. And and after trashing constitutional norms for years, the Republicans are, of course, going to be indignant about it. But these are the new rules. The, yeah, the, I mean, these, are, these are the new norms. Yeah, the new norms are going to be. We will have empty seats, vacancies on the Supreme Court unless we have a Senate and a White House that are from the same party. Um, that, that's basically where we are. Uh, that's not good either. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it, it, again, the, the constitution's not, you know, crystal clear on a lot of stuff, really crystal, crystal clear that this is up to the president to do this and that the house, you know, the Senate majority leader doesn't get, get to just not allow it to go forward. Um, but you know what, uh, Charlie, I, I think, and I had our, our friend Amanda Carpenter on IGTV with me yesterday and talking about how, and I think it was in your newsletter, also, just how there's kind of moderates from, you know, the blue and the red sides of 10 years ago are now coming together and talking about just being, you know, common sense and some sense of value and integrity. And that's what's lost. That's why we're in such a, this huge mess. And I know you also quoted Eisenhower in your newsletter today. And I love his quote that he said, the supreme quality for leadership is unquestionably integrity. Without it, no real success is possible, no matter whether it is on a section gang, a football field, in an army, or in an office. I mean, this is common sense. This is how the human species gets along. And we're, we're missing it right now. And, and that's why things, in my mind, are so messed up. So that quote from Eisenhower, I, I, I didn't quote Eisenhower. That was James Carville. Carville. <laughs> no, I mean, let's think about this for a moment, because what? it really underlines your point. James <laughs> Carville, the raging Cajun, has written a piece for the Bulwark. Okay, what? just take just I want everyone to think about this. And actually, he's got a line in here. Let me see if I, I can actually find it because he talks about the, the noble. It's really a, an outstanding 
in an outstanding speech. And he says, look, um, long after Trump has gone, this unity forged in his opposition should be remembered. My participation on this site, the bulwark, which is operated by many of my former Republican rivals, is evidence of this unity in and of itself. This article posted right here is evidence that this is a moment that carries extraordinary consequences, much more profound than victory or defeat for a candidate. And I have to tell you that if somebody would have told me a few years ago that we would be publishing an article by James Carville or that James Carville and I would be on the same subject, I would have thought you were absolutely insane. Okay, I have one more question about court packing because I've, um, I'm, I'm slightly obsessed with the historical precedent and what happened here. The, the real significance of Roosevelt's effort to pack the court was not just in the fact that he suffered a political defeat. He actually scored a legal victory. Because the court had been ruling against one New Deal program after another. He tries to pack the court. He fails. But the court got the message. And as a result, the, court's, the court became much less confrontational. So I guess the question I'm, saying, I'm asking is, as the justices gather, they can do lots of things with their 6-3 conservative majority. But. I wonder whether or not this is going to be in the mind, you know, in their minds that that the legitimacy and the future of the court is very much in play and yeah. and and might encourage them not to. I mean, the court always has a chance to rule narrowly or to be broad, go big and bold. And I'm, I'm wondering whether or not this might influence them somewhat. We're not supposed to think that politics influences the court. But we all know that, in fact, does. Yeah, and Roberts cares a lot about the legit- legitimacy of the court, and now he's no longer the swing swing vote with um, Barrett on, or soon to be on. But I-, I love that story, and actually do tell my students about that because you know the way that happened. Essentially, you know, we had the he- great the, the Great Depression, and and we had an unregulated economy, and um, basically, you know, the agencies that dot Washington, D.C., if you drive around, those were all produced basically or largely around in Roosevelt's New Deal. And people were worried that he was amassing too much power in the White House. I mean, that's the it's kind of like it's ironic to see how history you know, repeats itself because we're worried about that right now, too. Right. And so so the court came in and revived old doctrines like dormant commerce clause and non-delegation, things that are never used to start striking down the New Deal programs. And that's, as you say, then Roosevelt said, okay, you're going to do this to me. I'm going to then add enough justices that you can't kill my regulatory legislative process to basically get the country back on their uh, on its feet. And and the court backed off. It's unbelievable. And, and since then, you know, litigants have tried to revive those doctrines that the court used for a very short period of time uh, to strike down the New Deal stuff, haven't been able to do it. Um, so to your point, I think it's, it's going to be really interesting as a legal scholar, um, how how the law evolves in reaction to the political system. I do, I hope, honestly, I know Brett Kavanaugh personally, I have a tremendous amount of respect for his his legal acumen, frankly. Um, you know, I, I think these are reasonable people. Uh, I thought um, Sheldon Whitehouse's speech about sort of uh, the dark money influence in the courts, that was a bit chilling. Uh, I, you know, I hope the justices are watching this and they're one of the few places in the in the in American go- governmental system where there still is this sense 
of respect and decorum and, um, you know, not backstabbing, at least amongst the nine of them. And, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe we could forge a third party of humanity, you know, humility, values, integrity, and common sense, I don't know, um, to, 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 to follow up on, on that kind of a, a sort of a spirit in the federal judiciary. We need to leave on that note of optimism because we have so few notes of optimism like that. You know, let's, let, let's at least let's at least, you know, think about that for a few minutes. So, Kim Willie, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We always appreciate it. Thank you, Charlie. It's always great on my end, too. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. There are 19 days to go until Election Day.